0: Okay, well, please stand. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be reading Hebrews 8 and Zechariah 6 tonight. Zechariah 6 will be our sermon text. Okay, before we read, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you now for the scriptures. And thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that it would pierce through the, the dimness of our minds and our inattention and all of our weakness. And shine the light of your word on our souls tonight, we pray clearly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen. All right, now our sermon text is Zechariah chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw. And behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country... Have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me: Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start by reminding us of uh, the fascinating story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 about the end of the reign of King Uzziah. Uh, King Uzziah was one of the pretty good kings of Judah. Uh, one of the kings that generally did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, it says God made him prosper. And so Uzziah actually became very powerful, very strong, Uh, and reigned a very long time, 52 years altogether. But verse 16 of that chapter says that when he was strong, Uzziah grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, this was something that only the priests were allowed to do, according to the law of Moses. Uh, Kings don't have that responsibility, And kings don't have that right to offer incense. They're not descendants of Levi, much less of Aaron. And so as Uzziah comes into the temple and tries to do this, the priests come up and they confront him and say, you're not supposed to be in here, your majesty. Um, And instead of listening to them, they, they do know what they're talking about. They've told him the right thing. Uzziah gets angry at them instead and when he got angry, it says that leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord. And they had to rush him out of the temple because now he was unclean and he was going to defile this holy place in the temple. And for the rest of his life, um, Uzziah had to live in isolation because he was a leper now. And he could never enter into the temple again. And in fact, his son had to take over the task of governing um, And so, among other things, there are many lessons from that chapter, but uh, among other things, that event goes to show the great difference, the, the separation, the distinction between these different holy offices in the Old Testament. Kings were not supposed to be priests, and priests were not supposed to be kings. They were distinct offices. There wasn't a lot of overlap between them. That's one reason why the prophetic kind of pageant acted out here in Zechariah chapter 6 is so surprising and so striking in what the Lord tells him to do. Here you don't have a king holding a bowl of incense like Uzziah, but you do have kind of the flip side of that coin, which is a priest wearing a crown. Priest wearing a crown. And so we want to ask, what is the Lord getting at here? Why this combination of imagery? Why this overlap of these two offices? And importantly, why is the crown set aside at the end of the chapter and stored in the temple instead of the priest continuing to wear it? So those are the big questions I want us to have in mind as we start. We're going to look at this chapter in three parts. First will be God's forces deployed, verses 1 through 8. Second, God's priest crowned, verses 9 to 14. And third, God's prophet proven, verse 15. So first, God's forces deployed. And to understand the first part of chapter 6 here, we have to reach back in our memories to the beginning of the book, to chapter 1. In chapter 1 we saw another vision of horses. In that case, they were in a grove of myrtle trees in a hidden glen in the mountain, sort of a hollow in the hills where they could be concealed. And it was nighttime, you remember? And, and those horses were sent out to patrol the earth uh, with four colors to represent the four points of the compass. They're going to go out every direction, north, south, east, and west. And uh, those horses represented in that chapter... God's active awareness of world events uh, surrounding the return from exile. And also, remember, they brought back a report that all the world remains at rest. And what that was signaling was that there was a time of stability in the world that had arrived uh, after the, the worldwide turmoil Of the previous decades, and it was the kind of stability that the returned exiles were going to need if they were going to build the temple that God had told them to build. Okay, so fast forward then here to chapter 6. Here in chapter 6, the imagery in some ways is similar, but in other ways it's different. Um, So now there are similar kinds of horses. But the scene is is all different. The scene has changed. Now they're not in the dark. They're not in hiding. They're not sort of secretly spying out the world. Now, um, this is... uh, Ian Dugood was very helpful in kind of bringing out these contrasts in the imagery here. Now, these horses, they're drawing chariots behind them. They're moving out on the offensive, not on this kind of scouting expedition, but an offensive Military expedition, they're coming out from between these mountains of bronze. This is a very public, very dramatic display of military power now. No longer hidden in that glen in the myrtle trees at night. So God's forces here are being deployed at their full strength. And you notice that these chariots go in two directions this time. There's a focus on the north and the south. And that's to direct our attention to the direction you go to go to Babylon. That's to the north. And the direction you go to go to Egypt, that's to the south. Uh, These two superpowers of the ancient world, Babylon and Egypt. Against both of them, the Lord's forces are now moving out in power. And so as they go to patrol the earth, uh, the angel says, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. In other words, the indication here is that God's plan for dealing with Babylon is done. Remember that Babylon was defeated by the Persians shortly before the return from exile. The Babylonians were a very mighty but also fairly short-lived empire. And so what God did is he used Babylon as his instrument of judgment against Jerusalem. But now God has judged Babylon for its own great evils. And he has now removed Babylon uh, as a potential threat to the remnant of his people who are now back in the land. Babylon is not going to bother them anymore because Babylon has been destroyed. In chapter 5, we saw the Lord removing um, that symbolic woman named wickedness from the land of his people from, from Jerusalem she was carried in a basket off to Babylon off to the north country right and a house was built for her there she was carried by creatures with wind in their wings by the way so there's a um, resonance of this idea of wind uh, from chapter 5 to chapter 6 and so as one commentator points out people might have wondered okay well now it seems like there's this permanent home for wickedness in the north now is it going to grow and thrive there and continue to be a threat to God's people back here in Jerusalem. And what this is reassuring God's people is that God's spirit is at rest there. This is the kind of rest, the kind of peace that comes through victory. God has been victorious over that uh, land of wickedness, Babylon. And so this is an advancement beyond what we saw in chapter 1. It's teaching us that God is not merely aware of what's going on in the world. He is now actively deploying his forces, accomplishing his will, establishing his rule, extending his power for the sake of his people, projecting his power abroad so that his people in Jerusalem will be safe and secure to carry out the mission, the work that he's given to them. God has prevailed. And so now, as the victorious Lord of the whole earth, God is able next to make a new promise about the future. A new promise about the future. Um, Before we get there, I just want to press pause here for a second and reflect on something we can take away just from this first section. Everybody has the sense these days that we are living in uh, troubled times. We're always living in troubled times, I guess, when have people not been saying that. But you know, people tend to get the sense that we're living in increasingly troubled times at home and around the world. And you look back over this year, there's a lot that's happened in the U.S. and around the world. There are terrible, deadly wars raging. And <clears throat> it feels at times to a lot of people, as though the wheels are just coming off. Things that we used to think of as stable, it just feels like things are out of control. There's all this uncertainty about what's going to happen next. None of us knows what the headlines are going to be tomorrow, much less through the remainder of this coming year. What tragedies may take place, what new wars may break out, what turmoil may arise in other Parts of the world or in our own land. What I want us to think about together tonight is this I think that the Lord would have us go into 2024 differently from our unbelieving neighbors. I think the Lord would have us go into the year 2024. with with Zechariah's vision of the chariots of God in our mind's eye. The chariots of God being deployed from between those mountains of bronze, extending God's dominion throughout the earth, all of them strong, patrolling the earth as God's servants, uh, John Calvin commenting on this passage says these horses remind us that world affairs are not directed by what we uh, call we, what, what, by what he calls blind fortune. They're directed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who is at work in a special and redemptive way in his church, is at work in a more general way throughout the world, accomplishing God's purposes in every place, in every land, among all of the nations. God is not merely passively aware of what's going on in the world right now. God is active. He is sovereignly at work in the big things and small, directing the affairs of all of the nations to his perfect end that he has appointed, that he has planned from all eternity until his spirit is at rest, until his work is Is done and his plan is accomplished. And that is good news for the people of God because that means that we do not live in a world that is essentially chaotic. And that is how most of our contemporaries have come to view the world that we live in. We are living in a world of essential chaos. And if there's going to be any order and meaning to it, it's something we're going to have to create for ourselves. But that is not the picture of the world that God is giving to us here in Zechariah 6. We live in a world that is sovereignly directed. And so no matter what events this coming year holds, at home or abroad, we need to have this, not just these facts grasped in our intellect, we need to have this imagery firmly in our imaginations. That's what the Lord's giving us here through his prophet that the Lord of all the earth is on his throne and his chariots are abroad in all of the earth, patrolling the world, extending his victory, accomplishing his will, carrying out his plan until the great conclusion of all things at the return of Christ, when God's spirit will be finally at rest once and for all, not just in the North Country, but in all the world. And, even better, we will be at rest with him in his final victory. And that is something to look forward to in the future, but it's also something to rest in in the present. Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. So your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. Because all now mysterious will be bright at last. And that's some good news for us here from the beginning of chapter 6. But I mentioned that the first part of this chapter is setting us up for a promise about the future. And so now verses 9 through 14, there's a change of scene. And now we've come to God's priest crowned. Okay, verse 10 introduces three new characters here. There's Haldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. and it says they are exiles who have arrived now from Babylon. So there was more than one group of returning exiles. Not everybody came back at once from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And so these men apparently came in a later group. Uh, commentators suggest that maybe one of the reasons they came was specifically to bring new resources to contribute to the temple um, construction work. Um, Apparently, they just had some, some degree of wealth available to them. They had this silver and gold that Zechariah is able to draw on here. Take from them, from these recent arrivals, silver and gold and make a crown and set it, the Lord tells him, on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat the high priest. So, this is the same Joshua, also called Jeshua, um, who helped, who was with Zerubbabel leading that first wave of exiles um, in, Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1. Uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem. Uh, Also, he worked with Zerubbabel to lead the people in starting and then restarting the construction work on the temple. Um, It's the same Joshua that we saw in chapter 3 in Zechariah's vision, where he was uh, in the vision he had the filthy garments on in the heavenly courtroom. And the Lord sovereignly took away those filthy garments and clothed this priest in clean garments, signifying that Joshua was only going to be able to hold and carry out this office. He was only going to be able to be the kind of priest that God's people needed by the grace of God. It was only going to be by God's gift. And now, just as in that case, God gave him the purity and the holiness that he needed to be a priest in chapter 3, now God is giving him something else, something extremely unusual for a priest. God is placing on his head through Zechariah, a crown of silver and gold. Now, if you were writing the story, you thought if, if anybody in Jerusalem at this time was going to get to wear a crown, who would have been the natural choice? Wouldn't you think that it would have been the descendant of David, the descendant of the last king of Judah, most recent king of Judah? And that would have been Zerubbabel, the governor, uh, Joshua's leadership counterpart. But instead, God tells uh, Zechariah to put this crown on the priest's head. Now, it's it's clear that when Zechariah crowns him, Joshua is not actually being made king. So this this is not God saying, well, now the priest is the king at this moment. Rather, this is something that Old Testament scholars like to call a prophetic sign act. A prophetic sign act. So prophecy comes in different ways, right? Um, sometimes God just gives an, what we call an oracle, just says, thus says the Lord. And so there's just words, there's just speech, and that's the prophecy. Uh, sometimes God gives the prophet a vision. Here's what the prophet saw, and we've had lots of those in Zechariah so far. But sometimes a prophecy comes in the form of an action that God tells the prophets to do. You do this and it's going to have a symbolic meaning. You do this publicly in the um, presence of the people. So this is something God tells Zechariah to do that has symbolic meaning. He's not actually making Joshua king, but he is making Joshua a character in this divine pageant. He's showing something that God is going to do in the future. In verse 12, God interprets this sign act. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now other prophets before Zechariah had spoken about a branch to come. The interesting thing, though, is that in all those other prophets, the branch has never been described before this as a priest. It's always been a future coming king, a descendant of David, not Aaron. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah twenty-three verse five, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. It's the same thing in Isaiah eleven: the root that's going to come, shoot uh, the the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots that will bear fruit. Jesse's David's father, and so this prophecy is not coming in a vacuum. Here, Zechariah would have been aware of those that that prophetic trope, you could say. The Lord certainly is. He's using the same imagery again, but he's changing it up. This is very offbeat. Uh, It's kind of a syncopation. It's uh, unexpected for the Lord to say that this priest represents the branch now. He shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now you can see why it's natural for Joshua to be involved here because Joshua was obviously involved in leadership of the current temple-building project. This is true. Joshua is involved in building the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And yet, at the same time, you get this powerful sense that the Lord is talking about quite a different temple-building scenario, something in the future, something that's going to take place not through Joshua as an individual but someone else like him who is yet to come. It is he, God says, not not Joshua, but this branch figure that he's representing, who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Now never, ever had Judah had a priest sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. And you can imagine people who saw this thinking, wait a second, don't you have the wrong guy here? But the Lord goes on, there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Kingship and priesthood somehow united in God's plan in this perfect harmony in this future time. Now, verse 14, uh, commentator Thomas McComsky points this out. This is helpful, really, for him to notice. The crown isn't going to stay on Joshua's head. If Joshua were being made king, well, he would just have the crown permanently. Now you're king, Joshua. Now the priest is king. What do you know? But that's not what happens here. The Lord says in verse 14 that the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. Shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. Joshua's part in this prophetic pageant, then, is over. He plays his... Roll and then the crown is set to one side for a time. Joshua is pointing to a future person with a capital P, who unlike him, unlike Joshua, would be able to bear the weight of both offices priest and king at the same time. That's what this is all prefiguring. One person who would be both priest and and king, this great temple builder to come who is going to unite those two offices together in one. Now we saw what happened when Uzziah tried to act like a priest, right? Uzziah was not authorized to act that way. He could not be both. And neither really could Joshua. Interestingly, interestingly though, there are some indications earlier in the Old Testament that this combination of of royalty and priesthood, was actually part of God's plan all along. Um, Even way back in Exodus chapter 19, God said that he intended for the whole nation of Israel to be for him, he uses the phrase, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So not just one leader, but all the people were supposed to have this priestly calling And Israel, as a nation, was supposed to represent to the world both God's sovereign rule as king and Israel, as a nation, was supposed to lead the nations in worshiping God. So there are these kind of foreshadowing in Israel's history of this priestly and kingly role coming together as a nation. Uh, Of course, Israel failed um, as a nation in both of those tasks. That's all the more reason why this future priest-king Was so important, so necessary. I've disguised this pretty thinly. You know who I'm talking about here, right? This future coming priest and king. We're talking about the Lord Jesus. And we saw this in Hebrews 8 when we read it earlier. The very first verse where it says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. Um, Earlier in Hebrews, um, it reminds us that there there was one example in the Old Testament of someone who was both a priest and a king long before the monarchy in Jerusalem. And it's that obscure, kind of mysterious character, Melchizedek. Abraham meets in Genesis 14. Melchizedek was king of Salem, it says, and yet it also says he was priest of God Most High. Melchizedek, a king and a priest. Um, interestingly, in Psalm 110, the royal son of David, who is also David's lord, David's son and David's lord, is compared with that priest king when it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A son of David who's going to be a priest like that priest, King Melchizedek. So what Hebrews does is it looks at all of these Old Testament puzzle pieces, all this foreshadowing, and it says, okay, let's think about this. The Lord Jesus, now that he's come, he's acting both as our great high priest and as our king. He's our priest who's on the throne of heaven. He's carrying both those offices at the same time in one person. See, the Lord Jesus was able to do, is able to do, what David could not, what David's descendant Uzziah could not do, what Zerubbabel could not do, what Joshua could not do, but the Lord uses Joshua to picture for us here in Zechariah 6. A priest wearing a crown, a priest bearing royal honor, a priest ruling on his throne, and doing what? What is his work then? As this royal priest, he's building the temple of the Lord. Well, what is the Lord Jesus doing now? He is building the temple of the Lord, not the temple in Jerusalem, not out of rocks dug up out of the ground. He is building his church out of living stones, living stones. That's what first Peter calls him. He's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's interesting in that First Peter passage that I'm referencing. This is First Peter chapter two. If you want to look it up later, be fruitful to reflect on to kind of bring these these things together in your own mind. <clears throat> but it's interesting that in that First Peter two passage, when he when he talks about us as being a royal, that when he when he talks about us as being uh, these living stones being built up into a spiritual house, Peter also tells us that we are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. All of us in union with Christ are sharing both in his priestly task, offering God worship, bringing the world to worship God along with us, but also we are reigning with Christ. We are sharing with him both in that priestly and kingly glory of his. We are serving and worshiping God with him, It's his priestly role, and we are reigning with him. Christ is the priest and king on the throne of heaven. And we're his people. We're sharing in the goodness and glory of everything that Christ is for us and for the world. A royal priesthood. It's true of Christ. It's true of us in Christ. And in that way, you could say then that we are taking part ourselves now in the fulfillment of, of that last verse of Zechariah 6 where it says, and those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Okay, you can think of that in terms of a near and a far fulfillment. In in Zechariah's own time, there was a partial fulfillment of this. There were people from all around who helped to build the temple. There were were Jews yet to come from Babylon who were going to help. The Persian king had already helped. There were going to be other Gentiles who would help with the temple project. But, of course, the, the Lord is referring to something much bigger than that, especially when you compare this with Haggai chapter 2. We will not have time to go back there now, but the Lord has already given indications that the Gentile nations are going to come and contribute to the glory of God's temple that he is going to build. It's going to far exceed any glory the temple has had ever before. And so, in this in the near term, the people are going to know that Zechariah is a true prophet when some of these things take place in a partial way. So I've called this third point God's prophet, proven. But it's bigger than that because now, since the coming of Christ, now we get to be a part of this. We get to be a part of this coming from far off. We who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. God is giving to us the privilege of taking part in building the temple of the Lord. And so what's the point of this for us then? What's the application for God's people? Well, verse 15 ends not just with a promise, but also with a call to obedience. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so after this amazing preview of the future, God is closing here, calling his people to obedience. And so just as we close here, We've been thinking a lot tonight about looking forward to the year to come. Whatever 2024 may bring. There are a lot of things that are complicated. There are a lot of things that are uncertain. There are a lot of things that are unclear. We just don't know. But there are some things that are not complicated. There are some things that are very simple. It's in that category of keeping the main thing the main thing. And I want to encourage us as we look at the end of this chapter. Remember, this is our calling in two thousand twenty-four as people of God, and it is not complicated. It is to diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the world around you, the devil himself, are going to try to make you feel like it's more complicated than that. There are all these exceptions, all of these, you know, mitigating circumstances, all these things that make things more complicated. Listen. God is calling you diligently to obey the voice of the Lord your God. He has kept his promise from this chapter for us. He has provided for us, Lord Jesus, as our priest and our king, who's offered that sacrifice that we needed on the cross for our sins, and who's reigning over us in victory and power. Now it is our job to follow his lead, to seek first his kingdom, and diligently to obey his voice in the year to come. There's a great privilege, and there's a great calling. So let's go forth into this new year and do that together as his people, by his grace alone. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for our Lord Jesus, our great priest and king. Equip us, we pray. Strengthen us through the power of your Holy Spirit to follow him, and diligently to obey his voice now, in the coming year, and in all times to come.